Hi, I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech language pathologist, and welcome to my podcast, number 465, Introduction to Stages of Play for Toddlers and Preschoolers with Language Delays, brought to you by my website, Teach Me to Talk, where we're the largest provider of ASHA-approved CEUs for early intervention. Thank you so much for being here today, and if it's your first time to join me for a course, I want to explain what you're listening to. My podcast is actually counted as a course for therapists for their continuing education credits. So because of that, each of these courses is about an hour. So that's how long this course will be today. And I'm so happy that we can share this for free here on YouTube so that parents can participate as well and have access to quality information that they don't usually get to access. So if it's not your first course with me, welcome back. It is always a privilege to have you join me to talk about everything related to early language development. So let's get going with today's show. Now today we are starting a brand new podcast series called Stages of Play for Toddlers and Preschoolers with Language Delays. Now, today is the introductory course in this series. In today's show, we're going to be reviewing the background information that you'll need so that you can implement this approach. And then we're going to do a quick overview of the stages. Now, I started teaching this basic information a while ago, but we've never done it as in-depthly as we are going to do it in this series. Now, let me just say, too, this information is particularly effective for children who are nonverbal or minimally verbal and those you know those kids with language delays and so we can take their play skills this is the whole premise of this entire series we can take their play skills and then use that to drive language development and that should always be our main goal in early intervention right okay so let's begin by briefly talking about the connection between play and language skills now Carol Westby Dr. Carol Westby is the speech language pathologist and the researcher whose work this is based on she first did her symbolic play scale in 1980, uh, but updated it in 2000. So I've been using the preschool symbolic uh, play rating form, and that's a tool, a criterion reference tool that she developed with uh, another speech language pathologist. And again, it's not standardized, but it is great information. It's listed on your handout as a reference. So if you've never taken a look at that tool, and if you're looking for something even a little bit more formal than what we're talking about today or in this podcast series, you can uh, get that information there. So Dr. Westby describes the relationship between play and language as symbiotic. And I like to think about it that way too. And so many times parents will say to us, why are you playing? It just looks like all you're doing is playing. And so it's our job, especially when we hear that from a parent, to really help them make that connection. And so here's what we say. So when a child has delays in either area, there's potentially a delay in the other area as well. Certainly, when we have delays in play, we know we're going to almost always see delays in language. And why is that? Because play is closely tied to what? It's tied to cognition. And what is cognition? It's how children play, think, remember, plan, how they learn. And so play, again, is our, our best way to assess that. So when we see play skill delays, unless there's a motor delay, there's another explanation for it, we know that there's a cognitive delay going on too. And we know that language delays are inevitable when children have cognitive delays. There is no way to have a cognitive delay in normal language skills. And if you happen to see that, 
something is wrong uh, with that assessment. It's not that there's anything wrong with a kid like that because that doesn't really happen. Um, we'll talk about maybe some other exceptions that you might be thinking of, but in, a, in the truest sense of the form, when there are cognitive delays, there will be language delays too. All right, so let me just clarify. Sometimes we will see kids whose play is typical and they're still not talking and that is fine and we'll talk about what to do with those kids too. Uh, sometimes we'll see children, and this is the exception that I'm talking about, that have higher language skills or perceivably their language skills look higher than their play skills, and this is usually if that child is a gestalt language processor. So what do I mean by that? That means a kid who processes not in single words yet, at the beginning of this language development process, he's still processing in chunks. So he doesn't hear things like separate the individual words. When he hears ready, set, go, that's all one long word to him. Or if he hears something like time for breakfast, that's all one long word to him. And that's just how he processes. That's how his little brain works. And these children usually are using phrases, but not single words. We usually think about this in terms of our little friends who will go on to be diagnosed with autism, but it's not always the case. There are some kids who, again, don't meet that clinical definition for autism. They just process language uh, differently. They're not analytical processors. Analytical processors are children who uh, learn in the typical way, those single word processors. But our, our other friends process in chunks. And so sometimes you'll hear a kid who seems to be saying a lot, but his play skills are still way down here, not what you would expect based on his language skills. And we see that when we assess children with autism too. Sometimes their expressive scores are higher than their receptive scores. And so we know that that, that pattern in and of itself is atypical. And why is that? Because typically developing children, usually, as far as language goes, usually understand way more than they can say, especially with toddlers, right? And so when we see that that shift or that complete opposite pattern, we know that something is going on there. Uh, we also make the connection too between play and language when we talk about symbolism. So what is symbolism and why is that important? Dr. Westby says that we have to, before a child is able to use language, he must be able to represent reality with symbols. So just think about that. Why would she say that? That's because words are what? Words are symbols, right? Uh, this is not really a laptop, right? This is just laptop is the label that we have come up with for the, it's the symbol that we have come up with to represent this computer thing that, that I type on that's right here, right? And so that's what we think about too with play. Children have to first learn to use symbols or representations in play. And that typically happens with, again, in typical language development, it happens together. It happens symbiotically. So that's why she talks about it in that way. It's so interconnected. So play is so important for language development that we often think about play as a pre-linguistic skill. And again, what's pre-linguistic means? It means before words. So before a kid can get to words, we've got to see this cognitive development occurring in his or her play skills. So now let's talk about how play skills are defined. And we'll keep talking about this as we go, but uh, play skills certainly look different at different developmental levels, but our most basic definition for play skills would be this. Play skills mean that a child explores new toys, he likes to play, and that they use their little bodies to manipulate toys and that they're learning through play with a variety of toys. So let's kind of look at all of those things. We certainly need to see exploration. We need to see a level of enjoyment there. 
And we need to see again the physical part. What is the child doing with the toy? And do we see evidence that they are learning? So do they learn to do different things with the toy? Are they learning words uh, because of their play with the toy? Are they learning new things about their environments because of what they experience during play? And at this developmental level, at the very basic level that we're talking about with toddlers and preschoolers with language delay, our most important thing is that we're looking for the most basic kind of functional play with any common toy or very familiar object. So that's our starting point. So when play skills are present for a child, let's just talk about how it looks when a child is developing normal play skills versus atypical play skills. So a child will recognize operating parts of the toys like the knobs, the levers, the buttons, and children discover how toys work through trial and error. And we'll talk about when that specifically occurs. That's during a specific stage that we'll be looking at today, but that certainly is where we're moving. They also understand the construction of toy relationships like placing a ball in a hole or stacking a ring or putting the farmer in the tractor. Uh, so they certainly understand those kinds of things. A toddler who knows how to play with lots of common toys and you and will use familiar toys appropriately so that means they use the toy for its intended purpose and so uh, that would be like taking a ball and doing what throwing it or rolling it taking a spoon and doing what pretending to stir or pretending to give a bite right putting mommy's shoes on your own feet, uh, seeing a baby doll hairbrush, and then trying to brush your own hair. And so when a toddler is doing that, they're demonstrating that they understand cognitive concepts. And the big things that we look for here, and I talk about this all the time, are object permanence, cause and effect, and simple problem solving. And we will add means to an end, but that's typically, I kind of think about that the same as I think about cause and effect. All right, when play is not developing, how does it look with children? Well, a child may primarily do what? Mouth a toy, throw a toy, use it as a weapon on you, right? Those kinds of things. And so anything other than playing with them. Now, exploration is a stage in and of itself, and we'll talk about that when we get to the chart. And I didn't even mention the handout. Uh, the handout for today's show is pretty lengthy. Uh, the first couple of pages are the background information that we're talking about here. And then I've given you a comprehensive uh, chart with stages of play. There are four pages here. And so if you've not gotten a chance to get your handout yet, you might want to do that for the rest of this course so that you can participate. Otherwise, just listen and go get it later. Uh, but when a child is not developing play skills, again, how does that look? Well, we talked about that they're going to do other things beyond play with a toy. He or she may stem with the toy. And what do I mean by that? I mean that they are getting some kind of sensory property or some kind of sensory input to themselves because of the play. So that means they really, they like the lights. They like the lights flashing. They might play with the toy because they like how it sounds. They like the noise that the toy makes. Uh, they might have some tactile things going on with the toy so that a child may be the stuffed animal sitting instead of pretending with the stuffed animal or loving on the stuffed animal. Uh, he may uh, play with the ribbon or play with the tag. And so there he is kind of, it's more uh, serving a sensory purpose there. And I'm not saying those things are inherently bad. They're not. At the same time, though, we want children to be able to play with toys again in a more 
functional way and in a way that we uh, recognize is typical and again not for the purpose of play and developing symbolism not again the comfort or the soothing that that's that's necessary we want children to certainly have those experiences as well but you get my point there it's not play when they're using a toy in that way uh, it might look like a toddler doesn't seem to like toys and sometimes parents will say that you'll you'll talk about play and they kind of think oh he's above all that he's he's just he's above all that and and that's not really the case it, or many many times it's that children don't know how to play it's not that they don't like the toy and so that's our um, that's our responsibility too as professionals to be able to explain those differences to parents when they're saying those things. Uh, sometimes when children aren't playing with toys yet, when they don't have developed play skills, they look at toys, they handle toys, they certainly seem interested in toys, but they just don't know what to do next. Uh, let's talk about other ways that we can mischaracterize play. And you might hear these kinds of things when you're assessing a child. And a parent may think about or count these things as play, but they really aren't. So anything like saying the ABCs or counting, uh, those kinds of things, again, are, are great language skills, but they're not really what we're talking about here today. Singing a song. We've already talked about self-stem behavior so that a child... Um, might have a toy and you notice that he or she is just holding it up to the light a lot and again they're not really playing with that and sometimes parents think that oh she's conjuring up a magic trick or you know whatever they might say and again i'm not slamming a parent who would say that uh we certainly uh you know, just make our best guesses about our own children especially when we when we don't have educational backgrounds like that and so we don't they just they just don't understand you know and, and again so we have to make those connections there any kind of repetitive movement with a toy isn't really playing so if a child is spinning a cup you know a mom you might say well mom what does your child like to play with and she says oh she really loves her dishes and you think oh there's a wonderful pretend play scheme going on here she likes to play kitchen she likes to play food but then you watch her and she's just spinning everything that's not really play and so we have to talk to parents about that and then again like we talked about before with saying ABCs or counting any Anything like quoting from a movie and again those things can be uh, communicative at times but you have to really help parents kind of separate uh, what's going on right there all right young children who don't learn to play with toys let's talk about why this is important they will likely have difficulty forming social relationships with peers and why can we say that because playing with toys and playing together with other children is a an expected part of childhood and that's an important way that children learn is from other children by sharing their experiences during playtime and that's just a ritual of childhood that all children need to be able to experience uh, when young children don't learn to play with toys they're probably struggling with developmental delays in other areas too including the ability to learn new concepts and this will possibly affect their academic performance once they reach school age and they certainly may also have difficulty learning language and again that can be both receptively and what a child understands or how he can follow directions and expressively or what a child can communicate or say. Now let's talk about the reasons that play is important for language development and I'll give you about five of these and we're going to talk through these and again these are on your handout. First of all, play is a terrific way that little children learn almost anything. <laughs> and we talked about that before, how important play is, again, for children just 
understanding how things work and understanding, again, we talked about the relationships that they learn in play. They learn about size. They learn about constructing. They learn, again, they go on to learn, again, the symbolic play that we're talking about today with pretending. So terrific way for little kids to learn almost everything. And that's what I always say when I start to talk to parents about why that's important. Play is also a way that kids really learn how to talk. And again, some of that is because of just the inherent, um, just just being together, that relationship building that happens when we play one-on-one with a child. So it's a great way to teach a child just about anything. Uh, the next thing that we talk about, and I've already said this once, but I want to say it again, children who don't play are really missing vital opportunities to acquire and practice a lot of different things, many different skills, including language, including what words mean, and again, how to express themselves with new words. Cognition is a big thing that we've already talked about that we can assess with play. And again, because kids with language delays, toddlers, can't always tell us what they know, play is our very best way to assess what's going on up there in their little brains when they can't tell us. Now, usually we kind of think about cognitive skills as IQ or how smart a child is. But again, the professional definition here would be cognitive development. And so when kids are playing, they develop important cognitive skills. And I've already listed them, but if you're a therapist and you're not uh, really routinely explaining cognition to parents, this is what you say. It includes skills like thinking, planning, paying attention, trying new things, and then remembering and then making different choices the next time that they play with something or use something based on their previous experiences. So that's how we know that learning is really happening. You don't do the same things. You actually try a new thing and then you you get more and more skilled at using that new information and really applying that. And so cognitive skills form the foundation for language. So they help us form, again, that basic understanding or that conceptualism of what what things are and how <clears throat> what words mean and then using those words to communicate with others. One of my very favorite quotes about language development is this and it's actually from an ABA person. It says we cannot do anything with words until they are built on what was there before words existed. So we are establishing the foundation and really laying the groundwork for a child to learn to understand and use words. All right, so when we're teaching a child to play, we are building that foundation for words and beginning at around 17 to 18 months as toddlers have gained that experience in their whole first year and a half of being alive, they begin to play with toys in more sophisticated ways and begin to learn to use objects during everyday routines and begin to develop really the ability to think symbolically. And again, we are talked about what that means and that words are really symbols. And then they start to think in terms of words instead of looking at something and like getting the visual perception there. Then when they get to be about 17 or 18 months in this process, they start to, again, label that and really think, think using those words rather than those visual representations. And so we have to think about how important symbolism here. And again, that 17 or 18 month uh, age range. We're going to talk about how important that is and and what we can tell from that when we're going through the chart that we get to in a minute. But again, before a toddler can get there to that symbolism where he has a word to represent a person or a place or a thing or an event, he has to first learn to think and play concretely because we know that we always, before we get to the abstract, which would be the symbol, we have to have the concrete thing or the real 3D in life, real 
bang, right in front of us. And a child has to learn how to operate those things and manipulate those kinds of things first. And so let me give you an example. Before a toddler can say the word block, he has to understand, okay, this block is, is you know, it's it could be wooden or plastic or whatever it is. It's it's uh, square. You know, it has many different sides. He know he learns how it feels in his mouth. He learns how it feels with his little hands. He learns how it feels when he puts it on his leg or his arm. Different ways he can move the block. He can set it on the table. He can hold it up to the light. He can spin it if he wants to. Again, he can do lots of different things. But before he learns that that is called a block, he's got to experience the physical properties of that. And again, that that happens by manipulating, not by looking at a picture of a block, not by looking at a, a block in a book or a block on a toy. He's got to really experience that in his real life. And again, not from across the room. He's got to do it right there so that he is the operator of that block. And so all things occur before that child is really able to associate the symbol. And again, what's the symbol for the for block, it's the word. It's the word block. And so he's got to be able to see it, hold it, taste it, throw it, do all those other things with it before he really is uh, ready developmentally to understand that match that word with what that object is. All right, the last reason that play is important, and again, this is just a, a repetition of what I've already said several times now, is because play really teaches children how to become symbolic thinkers. And again, the symbolism is important there, and the thinking part is important there too, how, how they're going to learn how to learn how to think and learn how to learn. And so uh, it teaches all young children to move through that entire process from being a concrete player and thinker to a more symbolic player and thinker. And so they mature from that concrete exploratory play in that first stage onto non-functional play and then to functional play and then they begin to pretend. And so we're going to walk through that whole process. In that, in that their little journey here, they're eventually understanding concepts, again, that are more representational, more abstract, more symbolic, and more mature. And they begin to combine those ideas. And that's what we see happen so nicely when children begin to um, not only uh, pretend with themselves, but then they're able to share that experience with their little friends. And that's again, when they really start to form those nice social connections. When a child does not make and remember very many concrete connections, he's unlikely to be able to move on. And again, what's the next phase after you learn how to do uh, concrete play and the, the things, again, the, we're going to talk a lot about that, what that means, the constructive play and really learning uh, about size and uh, all the things that children learn when they do a shape sorter, when they put the rings on the peg and all those early, early toys, what are they learning there? Um, they're, they're just, again, unlikely to be able to move on to get to that next hump, which again would be pretending and symbolism. So can you see how they're going to have a hard time learning language there? So that's what we're doing here is really, really looking at how children learn and helping them bump up to that next level. But as always, we should begin at the beginning and then move all the way through the stages of play. So before we talk about what to teach and when, the stages of play, let's talk a little bit for a few minutes about how we teach play. Now this summer I have spent lots of time combing through the research for Late Talkers as I'm getting ready to release our newest therapy manual, the Late Talker Workbook. And I've learned a lot about play even uh, during this research. And the number one thing that, it, that uh, research has told us the most successful method for teaching play skills might surprise you. Do you know what it is? 
It's adult modeling. So what does that mean? That the adult shows the child what to do. So let me just say this statement so that you can get it here and really, really hold on to it if you're a therapist or if you're a parent. Adult modeling is the most effective evidence-backed way to teach a child how to play with toys. If you're a seasoned speech language pathologist or a seasoned therapist, you are not surprised by that, but sometimes parents are because they think we just put the toy down and then the, the skill is just there, the child knows what to do with it and he should just play. Uh, you know, I love this. I love that we have done this for years and years and years, you know, knowing that we have to show a child how to play first. And I love that we have a research uh, research then to confirm it. So what does adult modeling means? It means that we're going to show a child how to play with the toy. So you're going to play with the toy first. You model what the child should do and then you help him learn how to play that way too. And so the research tells us don't just leave that up to chance. Don't do it in a completely naturalistic way. And so direct teaching is required when we have children who again aren't naturally keeping pace developmentally with what we would expect their play skills uh, how they would be evolving. It's not just exposure to new toys and new experiences. We have to do a lot of direct teaching. Okay, now that we've looked at what's most effective, what is the strategy that's most effective for teaching play? It's what? Adult modeling. <laughs> Next, let's look at what the research says would be the most effective cueing methods for teaching modeling. And so this is our teaching a child to play through modeling. So what is it going to be? We always know with toddlers and with any young child that they are going to do better and retain the information if, they, if we start with the least amount of cues or the least amount of assistance, the least restrictive cueing strategy, and then move it on to most restrictive or most assistance. And so I like to think about it. When I explain this to parents, I say, hey, we don't need to give them the most amount of help at the beginning. Let's start with just the least amount of little cues that we can use, and then we can keep bumping it up if they need more help. But for right now, you know, again, we, we pull it back because we don't want to uh, create dependence there. And sometimes when we start with just a massive amount of hands-on assistance and just everything we can do, uh, the kid, again, becomes to rely on those things. And so he doesn't really learn it. And so if we back that up and just start uh, with the most uh, least amount of cues there, just, just, and so let's talk about what this would be. It's usually, and let's keep it really, really simple because this is how we're going to teach it to parents. So verbal cues, visual cues, and tactile or physical cues. Now, if you have followed me for a while, you have probably heard me use this tagline before. And this is how I teach everything. And this is how cueing really, really works for parents. And I have parents say these lines to me and type this, you know, when they're sending me emails, you know, the tagline here is tell him, show him, and help him. And so that's truly, truly representative of how this cueing system should work. And so verbal cues are always the first line here. And so we're going to combine these two pieces of research with adult modeling and cues to give from the least restrictive to the most restrictive. And let's talk about verbal cues, visual cues, and tactile cues. And again, we're using this for what? For direct teaching and play. So first, when we're starting to teach a child how to play with a toy, first we're going to tell him. We're going to tell him what to do. And again, that's the least restrictive thing. And, and certainly with adult modeling, the showing piece comes next. But we're certainly talking about this. We're giving a child words with uh, how he should play with something. The problem with this is that's where parents want to stop a lot of the time. They uh, just want to 
tell a kid, oh, you push the button or you whatever, and don't really realize that their child is going to have to have more direct teaching, uh, but they have the need to have the words there first, need to have the verbal cues there first. And why is this too? We often always know that toddlers with language delays have visual strengths and auditory weaknesses, which means that they're much more likely to learn from you by seeing you do something rather than you telling them to do something. Even though this is the first kind of step, we know that a lot of our little late talkers are going to have to move on to that next level, which again would be the showing piece, and, and that's what we know here is evidence-based. So that's the visual cues. And so this is modeling or demonstrating what a child should do with a toy. And so that means that you, as the therapist or the adult, should be down on the floor face-to-face -face with that child, just right in their space, showing them what to do. And so sometimes parents with physical limitations or uh, attitude limitations <laughs> with uh, how they should be playing with their children you know they, they they might balk at this and say you know I'm not, I'm not like you I don't sit on the floor and play with kids all day long I've got to be up here and that's fine but at some point you've got to say you know this is what's missing this is the component this is when you're when you want me to be here and help you teach your child how to talk this is going to be the part that that we all have to do where we are really again face to face with them and really that one-on-one -on -one interaction the next piece of this is tactile or physical cues and so this would be the hand over hand and assistance that we give a child and it's helping him learn how to play so that he can sequence the motor movements he can put his finger in the right place he can push the right the right spot on the toy to operate the toy and that's what's required a lot of times for successful play with toys uh, sometimes toddlers balk at hand over hand assistance they feel like it's uh, so uh, punitive almost and that you're really controlling them so hand under hand is a really nice way to provide uh, physical assistance sometimes with children and again their hand remains the primary doer when you're playing with toys when you do it that way and so sometimes again parents are a little bit reluctant uh, and sometimes therapists too are a little bit reluctant to be as hands-on as we need to be with toddlers but we just need to let that go because we provide physical assistance all day long when we are teaching a child to do other things when we are changing their clothes changing their diapers brushing their teeth belting them into the car seat and so certainly our children who need hands-on assistance to learn how to play we need to provide that too now I always talk about tell him show him help him and then I leave out the fourth part of this it is so important and it is just the probably the most important part not only not only for talking but for teaching a child how to play and it's repeat you can't just do these things one time you have got to keep giving them uh, the cues that they need and keep providing that input and as I tell parents and therapists all the time you have got to play and play and play and play and then when you're sick of all that do you know what you have to do you've got to play some more <laughs> so that's how important that is repetition is the only way that all of us learn just about anything practicing is so important to the learning process and it doesn't matter whether you're learning how to ride a bike or whether you're learning how to swim or how to drive or how to talk or how to play with toys and so practicing is a very very important part of that it's even more important when learning something new is challenging so when you have a child who's not playing with toys as you would expect him to be able to because of his age we know that we've got to help him we know that there's some challenges there and that certainly is uh, uh, most of the time when there's a delay with play skills there's a language delay too so we know that we've got to practice and that's a really really 
important part of that. Now, another tagline or little saying that I have when I work with parents uh, uh, and we're talking about stages of play, one of the things that I say is you have to learn how to stay in play. You can't just do this for 30 seconds and then walk away and think that your language delayed child who has had difficulty learning how to play with something in the past is suddenly going to get it and just, just it's going to happen. You know, you're going to have that moment. It's not that way. You've really got to invest the time. And sometimes parents don't want to play with children in this way because they don't understand the connection between playing with toys and teaching a child to communicate. We've already walked through all this things so those are that's the background information and they don't understand again that their child has to learn about remember that quote we said we have to uh, learn about what comes first what existed before there were words so we're really really establishing that foundation so that is compelling support for teaching play skills right so that's how we teach a child how to play we said adult modeling is our most effective strategy and then we said our cues we're going to tell him show him help him we're going to start with the least amount of cues we're not just going to jump right into you know full-on hands-on assistance we're going to try to walk them through it but we're going to provide it uh, because that's how we know that uh, toddlers especially those with developmental delays learn best so that's how we teach a child how to play now let's look at what we teach so I hope you've purchased the handout because now we're going to be looking at stages of play. And again, if you're listening on your podcast app as you're driving or you're exercising or washing dishes or whatever you do when you listen to the podcast, be sure to go back and get the handout because this will really help you to have that visual representation of, of what we're talking about here. And again, this is a comprehensive chart. It's four pages. I'm sure the final version of this as we proceed through this uh, podcast series is going to get tighter. I have a one-page version already of this. It's in Let's Talk About Talking and an Autism Workbook, but I wanted to bump it up for this podcast series because I want you to have just the best information so that you can apply it. So let's read through this and then we are going to spend some time at the end of the show talking about application so the first stage of play is exploratory play and it typically happens with children between one month and eight months old and let me just say this work this stages of play chart that I've developed is based on dr. Westby's symbolic play chart but she doesn't have this exploratory uh, stage in there because she's uh, again looking at symbolism and when that develops and how that develops so she just left this part out but I think for us as early intervention specialist that we should really think about this because lots of times this is where we get kids is in this exploratory play phase and we don't always know how to bump them up to the next level so we want to be sure that we're looking at at every possibility for uh, where so that we can meet a child where they are because we know that that's going to give us the best results and again so many of our little friends who have significant developmental issues who have diagnoses um, and, and again, some neurological differences or some physiological differences, they're going to still be in this exploratory play stage for a long time. So I think it's really important for us to look at it. So what happens during exploratory play? Well, it's sensory exploration and early motor manipulation of toys and objects. And that's what really dominates this period. So how does a baby learn? He learns not before he even gets to the toy part, a big part of uh, this phase is just learning how his own little body works. And so he, he learns by reaching and by kicking and by rolling and by scooting and by mouthing. And so that's how a child learns about items in his or her environment. Now, one thing that we're going to talk about as we move through these stages is also kind of the social relationships that children develop during play. And we're really talking about 
uh, how they relate to older children, or how they relate to children as they get older. But here we know that in infancy, in this first stage, we can really characterize this as unoccupied play. And so there's not really a play partner. And certainly parents are going to play with their children during this phase. And by the end of this phase, they're going to start doing social games as they listen to a caregiver sing or read or talk and begin to play little games like patty cake and peekaboo. And that is so important. But really, we're talking a lot, too, about um, play with toys. And so we know that during this earliest developmental period, children are beginning to learn how to imitate because we know that even newborns imitate some facial expressions and babies learn how to what? They learn how to hold their bottles during this phase because, you know, what have you done as a parent? You've propped that little hand on that bottle <laughs> because you want them learning how to do it on their own and helping, helping with that, right? Eventually, you don't want to have to you want them to be, to be able to hand them the bottle or hand them the sippy cup so that they can do it themselves, right? And so that certainly is happening here. But uh, again, unoccupied, is they're, they're playing alone. They're learning things, you know, in their, in their own heads, in their own environment. But certainly this is laying the groundwork for manipulating toys and learning about the world. And so with this chart uh, that we're looking at here in the show, I've got the play skills here with the stage and also the language skills. So what's going on language-wise here at this one to eight month level? Well, this is where babies first learn how to connect. And with the Late Talker Workbook, I'm, I'm so excited about that. I'm gonna talk about the six C's of communication. And this is the first C there. It's really important that babies learn how to interact and engage and connect with other people. The next thing that they're gonna learn here is really how to convey their needs and their emotional states. Now, at the beginning of this phase, when babies are newborns, we do all that communicative heavy lifting because we are interpreting what babies say and they're conveying a message. And they, they're not purposely conveying the message. We don't have a two-month-old who's who thinks in her crib, hmm, I need my mom, so what should I do? What should I do? Oh yeah, I'll cry. She doesn't do that, right? That's reflexive. But we interpret those messages and then babies over time learn what? They learn that that, that can become intentional. They can purposefully cry to get your attention, to get you to come to them from another room. And so that's certainly something going on there. They learn how to share attention between people and objects and speech language pathologists and other educational professionals call this joint attention where a child and you are sharing the same experience and you both know it. You both, if you were here and you were, the, the your object of focus was my pen, the child would be looking at the pen and you would be looking at the pen and you're both talking about the pen and, and he knows it and you know it. And again, that's a joint experience. So that's what joint attention is and that happens uh, toward the end of this period. So certainly at the beginning of the next uh, developmental period. They also were developing a longer attention span during this time, and they're also learning to take turns. Now, not take turns in the, in the way that we think about, oh, you say something and I say something and you say something and I say something, or let's say we're playing a game like trouble or you know a little game like that, it's my turn to pop the numbers and it's your turn to pop it, right? I'm talking about just that natural, the thing that comes first. And that, that's what we need to uh, remember through this whole series. You know, we're talking about what comes first. And so again, this is going to be uh, when when kids uh, are pausing, their turn their turn in that conversation is what? It's listening to you, it's looking at you. It's if, you, if they're cooing, if you're doing a cooing, uh, your child has started to coo, you know, two, three, four months. 
They coo, and then what do you do as the parent? You imitate them, and then what do they do? They coo again, and so that's how we establish that turn-taking. So those are the main things going on in exploratory play. The next stage is non-functional play, and so this typically happens between eight months and 12 months. So let me just say for you parents that are listening, if you have a toddler with a language delay, don't pay attention to these age ranges. You're just gonna pay attention to the sequence. I'm talking about this really for therapists. It's not to slam a parent, make you feel even worse than you already do about your child's delays. It's just to kind of let us know where we are and, and this is what happens first and then this is what happens next. So that next stage is non-functional play. And this is where babies master important cognitive concepts. And we started talking about these. Object permanence, means end, cause and effect, and very simple problem solving. And so what are they doing here? With object permanence, what is that? That means that they understand that an object is there even if I can't see it. So they begin to, you know, let's say that a baby cries because her pacifier has fallen out. And she just, it's the end of the world. She's crying, she's crying, she's crying. When she learns about object permanence, what does she start doing? She starts digging around in the blankets that are down there or in her coat or her shirt or the car seat because she knows, hey, it's still down there. I can't see it, but I bet it's still there. And so that's what object permanence is. The next big cognitive uh, skill that kids acquire, and again, this is before they're one year old, is means to an end. And so what do I have to do to get my end result? And this is so important for communicative intent that children start to really realize, oh, I've got to do something to get something. So this is when we see a child eyeing a toy from across the room and then even if they're not proficient crawlers yet, they find a way to scoot over there or roll over there or do anything that they can to, you know, reach really far or or cry, you know, again, so that they get your attention so that you know, hey, I want that toy. And so means to an end really develops here. This is where kids, again, might learn how to pull a string on a toy. And so, you know, right around the time that they're coming to the end of this by their first birthdays, that's, that's uh, uh, the kind of toy that a kid loves. And that's because they are practicing that uh, new cognitive development that they've learned. The next one is cause and effect, and again, same kind of thing. I do this, and then this is what happens. When I put the ball in the hole and then push it with my hand, the ball rolls down the toy. When I push this button on my Poppin' Pals toy or my busy box, the door flies open. And so they're really learning, I have to, again, this is what I did and this, what ha this is what happens every time I do it. And so that's my children have that repetitive practice. They're really learning that. And then the next one is very simple problem solving. This is where we see children start to really master things like nesting. They learn that the little cup can go in the big cup, but the big cup can't go in the little cup. Why? It's too big. It doesn't fit. And so by all that playing, they're really, really assimilating all of that information. We see mouthing decrease during this stage. Why? Because kids learn how to do different things. They learn how to bang the balls together, right? They learn how to pat, how to turn things over, and yes, even how to throw things. And we want them doing that because they're learning about the concrete properties of that toy. And remember what we said was important about that? If we don't have the concrete, we're never gonna get to the symbolic or the abstract. So they've gotta start here. So what is their, their engagement like here? Well, now we call this solitary play. So this is where babies play without input from anyone else. In the first, uh, exploratory play stage, it was unoccupied and it was unstructured without any sort of agenda, but now you can see a little bit more organization. They might play with the same 
set of nesting toys, same little set of blocks for a long time. They're learning how to, to develop that attention span, but again, you're not doing a lot of that. They're learning mostly on their own. Uh, so this time of solitary exploration allows them to begin to learn those problem-solving skills and those cognitive skills that we talked about, and it also prepares them to play with others. And so kids have to learn about these basic kinds of things before they can share those experiences. Uh, as they age with other toddlers. Uh, babies here do start to use adults though. They start to maybe touch an adult to continue an activity or hold your eye gaze to let you know that that's what they wanna do. And then toward the end of this phase, kids get really skilled with eye gaze. They start to look at you and then look at what they want and then look back at you. And that might even happen before they start to use gestures, which again, we're, let's go ahead and move on to the, uh, well, let's talk about this first. Uh, and then we, we talked about social games began back in the exploratory play phase or the first stage here, but here they really continue. By the time a child is 12 months, we want them doing lots of little games with you. So lots of little games like, you know, how big is the baby? How big are you? How big is that baby? So big, where they put their arms up, or we talked about patty cake, you know, patty cake, patty cake, baker's man, bake me a cake as fast as you can. Pat it out, roll it up, and throw it in the pan. You know, those little games. And if you are from a different culture or a different country, I'm sure you have your own little games like that. Those are so important for helping children establish that connection with you, establish that turn-taking piece. You know, you do this, I do this, you do this, I do this. Gestures emerge from social games. And so, again, that's something that's super, super important here in this non-functional uh, non play stage. So let's look at the language language skills that accompany uh, the play skills. And again, we're talking about how to analyze these, but ideally in typical development, when this is happening in play, these things are happening uh, with language skills. So let's look at the next part of that. So here, babies begin to use their joint attention and begin to show and give objects to really include other people in play. So now you see them again, not only maybe holding a block and looking at the block, but now they'll give it to you when you say, give me the block or when you hold out your hand to get the block. They look at familiar objects and people when they're named and they begin to follow simple commands and routine requests. So when you're getting them dressed and you say, put your arm in, they try to do that. They're not just little lumps like they were before. They're trying to really participate. Messages are more purposeful and how do kids convey messages in this eight to 12 month range? They use what? They use facial expressions, they use body language, and they do begin to use early gestures like pointing and waving. They make early requests and give commands. And so like when they want you to pick them up, what might they do? They pop those little arms up when you're looking at them. They might even start to vocalize and then use their little bodies and lean forward like, uh, 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 get me, get me, right? They're not saying the words yet, but you certainly have understood their message. Uh, when you're trying to give them a bite of food and they give you the hand and turn their little heads away, you know that they've rejected that. They don't have to say no. They've communicated that, right, with their body language there. Uh, children do by the end of this stage, again, we're hearing some vocalizations and some babbling, but uh, they're probably, you don't probably hear a lot of real words. By the first birthday, we do want to hear some words. Usually we hear mama or dada plus one or two other words. And certainly by 12 months, we want imitation to be developing so that when they've heard a word over and over and over and, and you know, you've said cup to them, you know, 25 times and you hand it to them and say, here's your cup and you hear just out of the blue, a cup, you know, they start to do that. And so we certainly want to see that. 
Um, words here, if they do have words, they're strongly tied to context and they're associated with very specific actions or situations. So again, a child may say mama as she's crying when she's really, really upset or even kind of babble it. And you think, I think that's purposeful. I think she's saying mama, but then you show her a picture of mama and say, who's that? She can't do it. So it's really, really tied to context. All right, let's move on to the next stage, which is beginning functional play. And so this is 13 to 17 months, and this is where toddlers learn to use familiar toys for their intended purpose. And so this is where it starts getting really good. <laughs> they locate the part of the toy that's supposed to operate the toy, the switch or the button. And how do they learn this? They learn through trial and error. Um, they learn how to do the things that we talked about with beginning functional plays, where they're stacking and knocking down blocks. They're putting the nesting toys together. They're filling and dumping containers. And again, uh, so much fun during this phase. So what happens during language? Words emerge. So they're moving on, right, developmentally. And by the end of this, by 18 months, which again, we're, we've kind of split this a little bit, but our big language milestone here is that um, by 17 months, okay, let's, let's talk about receptive first. So by in, in this period, we want children to march toward understanding at least 50 different words and beginning to follow one-step commands during play and everyday routines. And their context-dependent words, we want them using them for lots of different things, to request, command, protest, label, respond, greet, plus other social and personal words. Those would be words like bye-bye or words like um, more, where they're requesting with a word like that. Average vocabulary size really differs here. The best that I could find by 17 months, the size ranges between seven and 15 words. And kids probably also have some additional sound effect words like animal noises or exclamatory words that parents may not necessarily count as a word. And so here, imitation just continues to grow and grow and grow. And we also hear kids begin to try to sing. Now, I didn't mention this back in the previous stage, and I'm going to say this, when gestures emerge, we know that words are likely to come next. We hardly ever, I want to say never, but I know not to say never, right? But you don't really see children begin to talk until they start to use a lot of gestures. And we want to see that happening by 12 months. And then by 17 months, Dr. Amy Westby has a great milestone. She says 16 gestures by 16 months. And so again, if you have a late talker that you're working with that's 30 months, you don't have a lot of words, and then you start thinking, oh no, he doesn't have that many gestures. That's your goal. And that's the thing that we're going to do with, with this is really learn how to tie developmentally what's going on so that we are consistent and we're filling in a kid's gaps. The next stage, and I realize we're going pretty fast, but I, I want to wrap this up. I don't want this to be, you know, uh, much beyond our hour here today because we're going to talk about all these stages in-depthly as we move through these shows. So this is just an overview. Uh, the next stage, early symbolic play, is 17 to 19 months. And if you're like me and you're thinking, wow, that's a really odd thing, you know, she's broken that down to kind of an odd age range here. You know why? It's because it's the truth. <laughs> it's what's really happening there in typical development. And so she did. She does have some smaller age ranges, which I really appreciate. And you will too as you start to really use this method and look at it. Here, a child begins some early symbolic play. So what does that mean? He's beginning 
did the very beginnings of pretending. So he uses a toy with or on himself to represent something else during play based on familiar everyday routines. And so, and he might have realistic props at this point. And so he might take a blanket and pretend to go to sleep or have a spoon. There's nothing on it, but he's pretending to take a bite. And so here, a big thing is tool use. And so they do things like learning, like we talked about before, um, like learning that I'm going to take the hammer and drive the pegs or I'm going to use something to accomplish something else in play. Kids are still primarily uh, solitary players at this point. And why? Because they are mastering <laughs> the toys that they're using here. And they are really, really, again, doing just repetition after repetition after repetition so that they are really learning. And here they begin to use adults as helpers or as cheerleaders. And actually, I didn't mention that in the previous previous phase, they do start to have a, uh, an adult between 13 and 17 months help them operate a toy or get an adult's attention when they need some assistance like that. So what's going on with language here at 17 to 19 months? Well, this is where kids start to kind of get into what therapists love and characterize as language explosions. And typically that can happen, you might think about it as a little later, as 21 to 24 months, but I really kind of think about it that whole 18 to 24 month phase and our big milestone here is by 18 months and an average child will have 50 different single words with even more variability in how they use those words so in their function in their form and in their content and this is where true language really emerges and they start to use their words to demonstrate that so they use their words to direct you <laughs> and to engage you and and then you know they do the other things labeling protesting commenting sharing their feelings but they certainly learn to really their pragmatics as we say as SLPs really really start to emerge. Here kids start to name things too on request. Typically in the 17 to 19 month period, kids can name five to seven familiar objects when an adult asks them what's that. And certainly their imitation skills to become more and more refined. All right, we move on up to combining play actions with familiar routines. And again, this is where pretending really gets going between 19 and 22 months. Play actions are based on everyday activities that toddlers see other people do. They can now combine play actions. So they might stir in the bowl and then give you a bite. And previously those, those actions might've been pretty disconnected, but now they can sequence those actions. Um, and they're a lot more fluid with that. Uh, now they also move on to not just using things that they did in that previous section with early symbolic play where they use the toys on themselves. Now they can use the toy on you and then eventually as they near to, they're going to be able to use an object on something else. Like instead of brushing, take a baby doll brush. They brush their hair with it at 17 to 19 months. And then in 19 to 22 months, they're going to brush your hair with it. And then beyond that, they're going to be able to use it on a baby doll. And so that's a nice way to kind of think about it on themselves, on another person, and then on an object or a character. Uh, so uh, big, big things happen here because kids... Uh, their comprehension is improving language-wise. They're understanding even more familiar uh, commands. They're identifying pictures. They're now using single words frequently. And this is where parents start to really feel like a parent of a late talker when they get to this stage, like, oh, at least I can talk. I'm hearing a lot of words now. Now, that usually is followed up by, wait a minute, I want to hear phrases. What's... Enjoy the moment, right? <laughs> We've got to enjoy where they are. And so here is where they're really, really, again, beginning to talk and using words all day long. The next age range by the time uh, that they are hit that second birthday, so expanding play routines, 
pretending again is well developed here. Uh, they start to expand their play interest as well. They prefer sand and water play. They like to fill and dump. They enjoy block building and playing house with real life or realistic objects. So play now includes a lot more steps. And now they're not just doing the everyday activities that they saw you do before they were two. Now they can include less frequent activities. And now play switches from just that solitary play to a spectator or onlooker. So toddlers really begin to watch other children. They don't necessarily play with them, but they're watching them. And we also see parallel play emerge. And that would be as a child plays beside or near other kids. But again, they're not really joining yet. So what's happening with language here? They're following more directions. They're following two-step commands. They can choose familiar objects from groups on request. And now they're talking a lot more. They're combining words. We didn't talk about that in the previous section, and we really should have. When, they, when kids learn how to combine play actions, guess what else they combine? They combine words, and a lot of times you'll see a kid who you think, gosh, this kid has enough words to really be doing phrases. He's not doing it. Why is he doing it? He's got 75 words. What's going on? But you look at his play skills, and he's not really joining ideas in play yet either. And again, that's why this approach is beautiful, because you'll start to make those assumptions, and you'll say, hey, this is a cognitive issue. I've got to work on helping him learn how to do this concretely or in real life with things, with stuff, and then he's going to be able to do it abstractly or symbolically as he combines words. All right, so that's what's really happening at 24 months. The next phases, new jobs, new events by 30 months. So here between three and three and a half, a child bumps it up and he uses realistic props to take on new jobs with less familiar activities. So this is where kids start to play doctor and start to pretend like they're the teacher. Or if you, uh, they start to like, uh, you can play restaurant with them, even though you might not call it that, that you might just call it, you know, you're fixing me supper or whatever. And they uh, go over and pretend to, you know, make you a drink and bring it to you. And so they, they love, they're starting to really uh, do those kinds of things where they're starting to t take on, you know, these new jobs. And here by two and a half and typically developing, uh, kids with typically develop, developing language, they start to use short phrases. So their two word phrases now become three and little four word sentences. Uh, they may uh, start to answer early WH questions and they begin to ask WH questions too right here at this two and a half year level. All right, let's bump on up to three. What do we see by three? We see early role play. And so they can now sequence a long play scheme, uh, but play usually evolves naturally and it's not necessarily planned by three. And so you see them kind of coming up with ideas, kind of doing it on the fly, playing as they go. They also learn to use compensatory play strategies as a child acts out past events, but they add a new outcome. So maybe they're pretending that they've gone to the doctor, and let's say that, they, that the child or the baby doll that they're using, maybe they pretend instead of the baby doll sitting there, you know, being all compliant and getting the shot, the baby doll runs away, which is what they wanted to do, right, when they were getting that immunization. And so they add new endings to things. Uh, so that's a really, really big cognitive marker. Associated play starts to develop here. Remember we had spectator onlooker play where a kid was just watching and then we had parallel play where they were playing together. Now at associative play, they're playing the same things. They're not necessarily cooperating, which comes next, but they're, if they're in the ball pit, they're all playing with the balls. So they may not be sharing. They may not be coming up with ideas yet, which again, I'm getting a little ahead of myself. That happens in the next thing, but they're all doing the same thing. 
So they're shifting their focus to uh, here. This ha this is so great when this happens. Not from the object to the people. So they're more concerned about their little friends playing with them and their friends and their relationships and laughing and having fun together is much more important to them than what they're actually doing. All right, uh, and we certainly see sentences at, at 36 months. We see more complex constructions. We see kids reporting past events, and that's important. I didn't talk about that. At two, a child really can't talk a lot about what's not happening right in front of him or what's happened in the past. And after two, they start to emerge to do that and are certainly doing that by three. All right, let's scoot on through these last two age ranges because I've discovered here at Teach Me to Talk, we really specialize in under three. And when I share a lot of information about preschoolers beyond 36 months, uh, sometimes you know lo lots of you drop off at that point because you're only focused on toddlers. But let's include this for our friends who are preschool therapists. So pretending with, with peers, so not just pretending by myself, now I'm going to include other kids in that. And that happens between three and four. And kids here start to take on roles. They change endings for the play uh, that they're doing. They start to think things, what would happen if, what would happen if our, our little characters are playing here on the playground and it starts to rain? What would they do? And so they come up with new scripts and new schemes and multiple roles. And here's where children do start to have cooperative play. And so you see them working together to negotiate, to take turns, to share, and then to solve their problems. The last stage happens uh, between a four and five, and this is where children invent more elaborate play routines, and they're now using language, and this is where they become proficient planners. So now they're setting the stage, they're planning, okay, we're gonna play grocery store, so we're gonna need some food, and we're gonna need that shopping cart from over there in our preschool room, and you be the shopper, and I'm gonna be the checker. I'm gonna check your groceries out, so you bring your food up to me. So they start to plan. They start to boss other children around and talk about uh, what's gonna happen next. And so they're really, really using their language in play. Uh, one child might be the mommy, and all the other kids are the babies, and so the mommy gets to tell the babies what to do. So wonderful, wonderful use of language when those things happen. And you can take a look at the chart. You know, I just ran through those, but again, today is an overview. So I really wanted to show you uh, what we're going to do in this series. Uh, but I've organized, again, all the information in the chart, so be sure to take a look at that. And the next thing we're going to do in this last few minutes is I'm going to show you how to apply it. So now we're going to talk about application because I don't want you to just know all this stuff. What do we do with it? Well, the first thing is you're going to take your chart. Number one, you're going to determine the child's current level of play. Now, how do we do that? We assess it just like we assess everything else. We look at what a child is doing. We say, oh my goodness, he's master. He's doing cause and effect. He understands that. He understands object permanence. Oh, okay, well, that's great. Let me look on the next play. What is he doing in there? Is he using familiar toys and objects for their intended purposes? And so that's how you do it. You kind of look at where they are. And so that's going to be, you know, easier for a parent to do. I'll tell you, I have just learned through the stages of play. I kind of... Uh, I, I use kind of a cheat toy <laughs> to kind of see where I am. I like to use a toy with a tool, like a ball and hammer toy. And this is not my very favorite one. This is Melissa and Doug, and it's a fine toy. But I really prefer that batat one where you can see the balls. It's clear, and it 
goes down, but any kind of toy, you can really take a toy like this and, and kind of know if you need to move up or down on the chart. Because remember what we said, we said kids learn what? That's a play skill that kind of divides there. It's tool use. So you can take a toy like a ball and hammer toy, and if a kid is using the hammer to hit the ball, oh my goodness, and it goes all the way down, and he's looking at that, and he's anticipating that, and again, he's using the tool to do that, you know, you know what? You know, he's above that 17, 18 month level. So you think, okay, that's where I'm going to start with this. If he doesn't do that, if he hammers, he understands how to use the hammer, then he starts hammering on the table, hammering on, you know, any other toy that's there, hammering on you. That's a step down. He's not really using that tool. He's, he's, he knows how to functionally use, he knows what a hammer's for. He's got functional tool use, but he's not using it as a tool. He's not, he's not. Uh, again, the tool part of that is I make it do something else. It's not just that I hammer on it. And so that's become a good way for me to gauge. If you give a child this kind of toy and his go-to thing is put the ball in my mouth and uh, you know lick all over the hammer or throw the hammer, you know, oh my goodness, we've got to get back way down this play chart and figure out where he is there. And so again, random banging is not going to count. You've really got to look at that. Um, and decide. And again, the tool, it could be any, any toy with a tool. Let's take a little xylophone that has the little mallet attached. What's the kid doing with that? If he's primarily pulling it and not really using the mallet to hit the, make the music there, if it's predominant thing to do that, that's means to an end. He's using that like any other string toy that he would use. He's not really using the mallet as a tool. I hope that you understand that distinction and I hope that that gives you some uh, something to think about you know again this little this little toy or a toy like this or any kind of toy with a tool like that is going to be invaluable to you as a therapist as you're using this information and trying to kind of figure out you know where is a kid with that all right the next thing that you're going to do is determine a child's current state of language or stage of language and so you can do that with your language assessment you've already given him you know the PLS or the Rosetti or the self or whatever tool you use and you say oh well his language is at 18 months. Uh, if you don't have access to that, you can certainly do the same thing that we did with play with this chart. Just look at where your kid is with that and look, you know, does he have any familiar words? Is he imitating any words? No, he's not imitating any words. Okay, well then his, his language is right down here still at this 9 to 12 month level. And so that's how you would do that. Uh, and so then you match it up. You say, what is my play level and what is my language level, and then you develop your plan with how you're going to use this approach with really using play to teach language based on that. So if play and language match, fantastic. <laughs> you're not going to have any kind of uh, distortion going on there. If he's too, even if it's delayed, if he's too, but everything that he's doing language and play wise is down here at that 13 to 17 month level, fantastic. You know what's happening there. You know that it's coming in. It's just a delay. It's slower than expected. And what does that kid need? He needs practice so that he can establish and um, get to mastery, right? And so you've just got to really, uh, again, use the strategies here, and especially as we're going to talk about through this series. Today was just an overview, but really match that. You say, I'm going to take the toys that I know go with this stage of language, and this is the language input that I'm going to use, and I know this is effective because this is where he is with play, and you stay there, and then you move on forward all the way through these stages, really using play to drive that language development. All right, so what do you do if 
play is higher than language, and that happens a lot with our late talkers. Our little friends that are apraxic, and again, our little friends that uh, who uh, just uh, just have an expressive language delay. Their play most likely will match their chronological age, and so what do we do then? Our goal is to use play again to drive language, and we're going to make our language match or our first goal there isn't to get beyond up to maybe even their chronological age. It's just to get their language to match where their play skills are. And and when kids again have play that's well above where their language is, what do you know about those kids? Play is a strength and you know there's not a cognitive component. And so you don't have to worry about that. Uh, so it gives you really, really, really good information, a starting point for working with the child. And always our immediate goal is to always bring language up to that next play or to the play stage so that those can at least be commiserate. And then we move forward. We, we use that play to really drive the cognitive development, which will drive the language development. Now, you may be thinking, what if language is above their play? What if I'm working with a kid who's just spouting out all these phrases, but play-wise, he's still really just manipulating the toys. He's not really combining any any uh, ideas together. I don't see a lot of sequencing in his play. I don't see any pretending. What do you do? Well, we talked about this at the beginning. Those are our little friends. You know, we think about their language maybe as echolalic in that they repeat what they hear, but they don't necessarily process it. The truth is, though, a lot of gestalt language processors are processing it. They're just processing it as one whole word or they're learning in those chunks. Sometimes they are communicative when they're using those little phrases. And we really have to be such, such just, just, fervent interpreters for those kids and really listen, what is he saying? What could he mean? And help them really, if they're not assigning meaning, we can do that. And I'm kind of getting off track here talking about that. But our big thing here is we have to catch up their cognition. And we use play to do that. So when we have a kid who's using a lot of phrases and they're popping out, you know, things like time to play or ready, set, go. You know, they're saying the whole thing, but they're still, their play is way back down on those lower levels that would not indicate that they're able to really spontaneously generate a phrase on their own. Uh, you, you use play, you use play to get there. And so you work through the stages um, to get there with that. All right. We see this a lot in our little friends with autism. And let me just say, you know, so many of our little friends with autism have really, specific interest and specific preferences that may seem even a little atypical, but basically they learn how to play in the same sequence. And so we have to think about that. And so we're going to use their preferences and what they like to still teach them these basic concepts and move them through that continuum of play. All right. So with the chart now, by the end of today's show, you should know how to take the chart and determine realistic short-term goals for language. And again, what do I mean by that? I mean that if a child is three, or let's, let's keep it in early intervention. If a child is, you get a referral when a child is two, but he, his play skills are here at this 13 to 17 month level, but his words are down here still at this eight to 12 month level, you're, you're not going to make a, a goal for phrases just yet because he's not there yet. He can't get there yet. You're skipping too many steps. You're just going to want his language to match his play. And so that's uh, 
that's the whole premise of this is, is using this information to develop realistic goals for children and then knowing how to move them beyond that and remember why we're doing this play skills are the very best way to gauge what a child's cognitive skills and we know when we know there are cognitive delays we expect what we expect language delays and so again all of this is inter interconnected uh, and, and that's how we need to think about it. We always have to shore up play so that language can move forward. So that's how we use this information. Okay, so we're going to talk about this, the whole rest of this 10-part series. There's going to be one show or course per stage all the way through the last couple of stages. Then we're going to do some combining, as I already told you that our audience here is primarily early intervention or birth to three, but I know there are some of you who desperately want that information for preschoolers, and so we're going to include that, but we're probably going to combine it. In the shows, uh, the most my most favorite thing that we're going to do is we're going to take a lot of toys <laughs> and walk through them, and I'm going to teach you some scripts and teach you some things that you say, and again, what are we doing here? We're really going to match the language level and the language strategies with the toys that we're using. And you can certainly use any, you can say anything when you play and teach a kid how to talk, but when we do it in this way, when we use what science has taught us about this, we can get laser focused and get much faster results than we would otherwise. Another thing that I'm going to do with this series is do a shorter version of this and we're going to bring back what we've called therapy tip of the week in the past and do kind of what I'm thinking about is the parent version of this so that it's just a short show. Eight to ten minutes where we're going to look specifically at the toys and specifically the language strategies. So I think that'll be really, really helpful for you as parents who don't always want to listen to a whole hour show. I hope that that will really help you. The other thing that I'm going to do is show you how to make your own what I'm calling copy kits. And that would be taking a stage of play and assembling a little toy kit so that you can use that as a therapist. And for those of you, you know, who you, you have your pockets of kids, you say, oh, well, my kids are everybody I get primarily in that 13 to 17 month range. You should know the toys that go with that. You should know the toys that fit into that stage of play. And I'm going to give you links for those so that you can develop your own little toy kits or copy kits if you don't have those. And I know that's going to be fantastic for those of you who are parents and who are really struggling to find things that seem like they work as you are helping your own late talker. So uh, that's what we're going to do that. So, so many wonderful things are coming up in this series. Uh, but today's show was just an introduction. If you are listening on your podcast app, don't forget to go get your credit for this course. It's at my uh, website at Teach Me to Talk, and this is show number 465. And you can get CE credit for this show for just $5. All right, much of this information that we've talked about today is found in two of my resources, and I want to direct you to those. And the links will be right here for these therapy manuals on YouTube. The first one is the Autism Workbook. So if you are working with a child with autism and you are stuck on helping him learn how to play or talk, the Autism Workbook will help you walk through these stages. Same thing with a late talker. If you're working with a, a little one who's one, two, or three, you're still not hearing words, maybe you've been in therapy for months and months, something is missing. And so you've got to have a different set of strategies. And my therapy manual, Let's Talk About Talking, will walk you through the 11 skills that all toddlers master before they begin to talk. So those are two resources that I really, really want to direct your attention to. And again, those links are below. All right, that is it for today. Thank you so much for joining me for this course. I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech language pathologist, and you've just participated in Teach Me to Talk's podcast. <laughs>